The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church pulpit series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. Of the year, I kind of really wanted to challenge you. Um, many of us set goals and resolutions and all that kind of stuff. Who's, who does that every year? Yeah? Only, only like four people. That's good. Cool. Oh, God. So I don't know. Don't want to worry about this message now. Um, uh, many of us do. Even if we don't write them down, we, we think about the year ahead. We think about the year that's been, and we kind of think about the year to come, and try and kind of take stock. And it's a good time for me as, I guess, um, a pastor in this church, and if you're visiting with us, I'm, I'm glad you're here, and I hope you enjoy this message, but I guess this is kind of a, a message for my flock, as it were, you know, to kind of really think about where we're going this year as, as individuals, as families, and to be intentional about that. Um, uh, we, we were out um, yesterday uh, for the early part of the fireworks, and, and uh, Micah was, you know, getting messages and kind of checking on what his friends were doing, and, and they were kind of at parties and, you know, drinking, and, and they're only 17, and, you know, so he was kind of you know, all the way through the night, he was going, what a waste of time. Why would you bother doing that? What's the point? Of that? He was really kind of struggling to get his head around this whole kind of partying, drinking culture among his friends. And, and he was just thinking, what is the point of that? Like, why, why bother? And it kind of got me thinking that so often we, not maybe us specifically, but in general, people live their lives without intentionality. We just kind of go through the motions and we just kind of live life. And it's not till we get to the end of our lives and we kind of stop and we take stock and we go, what have I done with my life? What, what have I accomplished? What have I achieved? What, what do I have to show for my life? And you know what? When you get there, it's too late. It's too late to do anything about it. And you live with regret. The remaining years of your life, you just kind of go, what a waste of life. And I don't want you to live that way. And that's why every year is such a good opportunity to take stock of how you're living your life. Are you living intentionally? Are you living purposefully? Are you living with some sort of plan, some sort of big idea? You've heard the saying, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. And that's true of Christian living. If you don't have some sense of direction, then you end up wandering around aimlessly. Or the flip side of that is that you spend a whole lot of time and energy and effort investing into things that don't really matter. And I think that's even worse. Where you kind of buy into the messages of our culture that tells you that these are the really important things and that life is really about this. And you buy into that and you buy into the messages in our, in our culture and our media and you kind of follow those dreams and you chase after those things and you invest your time and your energy and, and all your passion into things that don't really matter. You know, given that many of us are from an ethnic kind of culture, let me See if I can help you grapple with this, how ridiculous this is. It's like when you're sitting your HSC exam, right? Most, most of us have done that. And, you know, ethnics, we study real hard, right? I'm not saying that Anglos don't, but, you know, it's, <laughs> this is part of the ethnic mindset, right? It's all about getting ahead and having a better life and, you know, having the life that your parents apparently didn't have, having a better life and all of that. We buy into that, right? And you study and you study and you study and you, you bust your guts out for your first exam, which is usually usually English for, for most people, and, you're, you, and you get to that point where you're ready, you know, you're like, I'm, I'm going to nail this exam, 
I've got Shakespeare down pat. I've got Keats or whoever it is you're studying. I've got him in my back pocket. Not, not literally, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready for this exam. And then you get there and you're sitting there and the paper is put in front of you and, you know, you've got to have it over and no one's allowed to look at it and turn over or anything, write it and nothing. And then the clock ticks over and they say, turn over your paper. And you look down and there in big, bold letters it says chemistry. Imagine the, 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 the feeling that you would feel in that moment, the, this pit in your, in your stomach, like, oh my goodness, I am so not prepared for this. I had no idea that this was what I was going to be examined on. I've invested all my time, all my energy into learning Shakespeare. I don't know about any of this stuff. Sometimes that's how we live our lives. We, we spend so much time and energy pursuing things. And we think that when we get to the end, we're going to kind of get this tick. And we're ready. And we need to find that maybe the question paper that God puts in front of us has entirely different questions. And we've just wasted our whole life. I don't want that to be you, and I certainly don't want that to be me. And so I want us to look at a, at a parable in the Bible that Jesus told and he talks about being a fool. And it's the parable of the rich fool. And it's found in Luke chapter 12. And if you want to follow along, you can turn in your Bibles to Luke 12. We're going to start at verse 13. And this is the dialogue that introduces this parable. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, verse 13, Luke 12, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So this is a conversation about money. This is a conversation about you know, getting your fair share which seems like a legitimate conversation to have. But Jesus' response indicates that he has a different set of priorities and values. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. There's a warning there. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he goes on, verse 16, And he told them this parable, The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I've got a problem. It's a good problem. What am I going to do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he has this brilliant idea. Verse 18, he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God. There's the chemistry exam coming. But God said to him, you fool. You fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with those who store up things for themselves but are not rich toward God. Let's pray. Father, I ask for your Holy Spirit to come and quicken this word to us. Open our eyes, open our hearts to receive your truth that brings freedom and liberty. Lord, that when we leave here, we would be challenged, we would be inspired, we would reflect on our lives and how we're living them to ensure that we are living them to honor you and to bring you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
So this guy's called a fool. It's not something that any of us want to hear from God. I'm sure. None of us want to get to heaven, rock up before the throne in the glory, angels buzzing all around, elders bowing down, worshiping, all that stuff, and God says, fool! That's not going to be cool at all. So we would do well to kind of think about and look at and reflect on what made this guy a fool and what can we learn from his example, this parable that Jesus is trying to teach to inform us and get us to think more correctly about how we're living our lives so that we might never risk being called a fool. I think he made three fatal errors. The first one is that I think he bought into the belief that life is about accumulating stuff. Jesus begins this parable by actually saying that be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And so Jesus goes on to tell this parable about a guy who does just that, collect stuff. And remember, Jesus spoke this parable about 2,000 years ago, before media. We live in a world where we're constantly bombarded with the message that you need more. You need more. And it's all around us. It's on every website that we go to. It's on the emails that we don't even want. It's on the billboards. It's in the movies. It's on television. It's in music. It's product placement in movies. It's everywhere. It's inescapable, this idea that the culture around us keeps telling us, you need more. You need more. Your life is only going to find meaning and satisfaction and joy when you get the next new thing. Now, we all know that that is not true, don't we? And I buy into this because when the next iPhone comes out, I think that somehow my life is going to be great when I get that. And when I do, it kind of lasts for, you get that buzz and that thrill of going, oh, I've got the latest thing or the new thing. But then, you know, it doesn't last for, it's kind of, it's like a mirage. It just evaporates and then you kind of chase the next thing and the next thing. You know what? I heard Andy Stanley preach a message and he said this. He said, in all his years of pastoral ministry, he's never heard anyone who's been on their deathbed, who's been sick in hospital and about to die or you know, dying of old age, ever say to him, can you please bring my flat screen TV? I want to spend a few special moments before I die. Or can you please bring my brand new Audi Quattro that I bought six months ago? I want us to spend some quiet time you know, reconciling our relationship. No, he said, and yet we think that happiness is found in things. And we pursue them. And, and this guy, remember Jesus is saying that he's already rich. Think about that. Right? He's a rich guy. A certain, the ground of a certain man, a rich man, yielded an abundant harvest. Here's what's even more deceitful about this trap. Sometimes we mistake the blessing of God as his license to accumulate more. And that's dangerous. And again, you know, I come from an ethnic background, and so I'm going to kind of speak straight up to those of us who have an ethnic mindset. We often make this mistake. We think that, you know, the blessing of God is a sign of his favor on us, and that's because he wants to give us stuff to keep. Watch out. Watch out. Because in this parable, what we, what we don't see is that it even entered this man's mind that maybe, just maybe, God's given me more to give more away. Just maybe. Because in this economy, this rich man would have had a whole village of people that were dependent on him. And they would have been working for him. 
And his withholding the blessing of God was robbing them of receiving the blessing that God had given him to give. See, when I read through the Gospels, Jesus is always more interested in in what you do with what you have and not in what you have. Jesus, with his one talent, expects you to do something with your one talent. He never says, oh, well, if you have one, you should be wanting three, and if you you have three, you should be wanting five. No, he says, tell me what you did with the one I gave you. And again, here's the thing. Sometimes we kid ourselves and we say things like, if I have more, I'd give more. Let me burst that bubble for you. Look at what you're doing with what you have because that's always a good indication of what you will do with the more. If you're not giving and you're not generous with the little that you have, what makes you think that you will do generosity with more? That's what Jesus would ask. What are you doing with what I've given you? So that's the first lie that he buys into. This idea that accumulating more stuff, holding on to more stuff, keeping more stuff for myself is the secret to happiness and to life. There's an article written in the Time magazine in 1988 about the invention of VHS tapes. And there were two competing companies, Sony and JVC. Sony came up with their beta tapes that some of you may uh, know about and heard about. And that was cutting edge technology at the time. And they so wanted to protect it that they kept it to themselves, kept it all secret, hidden, didn't share it. JVC, on the other hand, they came up with the VHS technology. And what they did was they shared the information with everyone. They kind of got it out there, got the word out. Hey, we've got this new technology, this new invention. Here it is. And what it resulted in was a whole bunch of electronics companies producing VHS tapes and VHS players. And what happened was Sony was edged out of the market because JVC's technology just took over the world. Today, beta machines are in an electronics graveyard somewhere. I think about a year after this happened, Sony's market share went down to 10% because they held on to stuff. When God blesses you this year, what are you going to do with it? I'm not saying you shouldn't be praying for blessing. I'm not saying we should not be praying, hey, God, will you just increase? But my question to you is, what is your motivation in praying that? Is it because you want more for yourself? Is it because you want to accumulate more stuff? Then be on guard because Jesus says, be careful, be on your guard. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Be on your guard. Second fatal mistake that this man made that made him a fool was he believed the lie, he believed the illusion that he's actually in control of his life. He bought into that. Because if you can keep skipping... Okay, don't worry about the slides. He says this. He thought to him and said, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger ones that I can store my extra stuff. And this is the key verse, verse 9. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. This guy is going, I've got a financial plan. And you know what? Jesus never rebukes him for having a plan. Jesus never rebukes this guy saying, it's a bad plan. Actually, from a business point of view, it's a brilliant plan. Right? You know about supply and demand. If you, if you know economics, you know this is a good plan. If this guy has got a bumper crop, withholding it, building storehouses, will drive the prices up. 
And driving the prices up means this guy is going to get filthy rich. This is what he knew. And so he's like, man, I'm, I'm, this is it. This is my lotto ticket has come in. This is my mother load. I am loaded, and I'm going to sit back and relax and enjoy the rest of my life, and I've got it all planned out. This is how it's going to go. And God says, you're a fool because you know why? You're not in control. You're not in control of your life. Control is an illusion. This idea that we can minimize risk is really an illusion. We don't. And here's the thing. This man thought that his wealth, his financial security, was going to enable him to control the risks in his life. And that's just a lie. And that's to make yourself God. And that makes you a fool. That makes me a fool. Because we don't control our lives. There's a story told about a guy called Larry Silverstein, a really successful um, American real estate guy. And he owned heaps of uh, really significant properties in New York. And by his own admission, he was, uh, in spite of having all these amazing holdings, he was obsessed by getting acquisition to the World Trade Center and the, and the Twin Towers particularly. And so after months and months and months and months of negotiating and negotiating, he finally secured a 99-year lease that cost him $3.2 billion. Six weeks later, those towers were gone. Like that. See, I don't know if you've had the experience when you go to the beach in summer and you build sandcastles, you know, with the kids, and you spend sometimes hours. I've done that when our kids were little. And you spend so much time and, you know, you, you kind of put in all the detail and you kind of get twigs and leaves and you kind of stick them in and you do all this stuff. And you, you stand back and you look at it pretty impressed with your effort and then a rogue wave comes further up the beach than you thought it was going to come and just takes it all out. I think that's kind of a reminder that God says, you're not in control. You're not in control. You know, in, in James chapter 4, in, this, in the same context dealing with business and money and wealth, James says this, you know, who do we think we are? I mean, the ultimate arrogance is for us to say, you know, I'm going to go here and I'm going to do this and I'm going to trade here and I'm going to do business there. And, and he says, really? You're, you're a vapor that's here today and you're gone tomorrow like a puff of smoke. Do you really think you control your future that way? But he says, if the Lord wills, that, if the Lord wills, you will go and you will do and you will trade. And you, it's recognizing that really I'm not in control at all. And in Matthew 6, the, the famous passage on worry, Jesus kind of poses that same question. He says, which of you can add even just one extra hour to your life by just worrying about it? The answer, obviously, is, well, none of us really. And so his question is then, why are you worrying about this stuff? Isn't it better for you to actually cast yourself into the loving care and concern of, the, of your heavenly Father who knows what you need and who's able to care for the birds and the, and the flowers of the field? Is, is, doesn't that make more sense? And yet sometimes when we set our goals and we set our future direction and we set the direction of our lives, it is to accumulate more, to, to have more money, to invest wisely, to, to have security is the word we often use financial security. And yet, if that is the driving motivation that propels us to, to, to kind of earn more, to save more, so that we can get security, then Jesus would say, you're a fool. Because you could have millions, 
and your life could be gone like that, and then what will you do? Then what will you do? And he says, don't buy into that lie. And again, I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't make plans. I'm not saying you shouldn't be thinking about your future and thinking about retirement and thinking about superannuation and you should just be spending all your money. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, yeah, make plans and make decisions and, and be wise and invest and do all of those things. But think about what motivates you to do that. Is it this idea that if I do that, then I will be able to sit back, rest, take it easy because I'm in control? because I have now accumulated enough wealth to, to eliminate the risk in my life and to actually control my future. So God, I don't, I don't really need you. I don't need to trust you. I don't need to obey you. I don't need to give. I don't need to do anything because I've got it. I've got it figured out. I've got it sorted and I've got a plan and I'm going to stick to my plan and it's going to work. Then Jesus would look at you and say, you fool. Jesus would look at me and say, you fool. You're not in control. The third mistake that, that this guy made was that he believed that worldly success, worldly wealth, is the same as spiritual wealth. Because the story ends with God saying to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Verse 21 is Jesus' comment. This is how it will be with those who store up things for themselves but are not rich toward God. There's a difference. See, this guy in his day and his age would have been seen as blessed, would have been seen as successful, rich, powerful, influential. He would have been on the top level of his social strata. You can be the richest man in the world and still be the poorest in, in, in terms of God's economy. And that was the, the mistake he made, that he kind of thought, you know, what I, what I need to get to, that, that end point is being successful, is being financially independent, is being secure, and that is the measure of the success of my life. And God says, no, it's not, if it comes at the price of spiritual poverty. It doesn't count for anything. In 1 Timothy 6, you know, Paul writing to Timothy says a lot about pursuing wealth and the love of money and how it brings ruin and destruction. You can be successful and buy into the stuff in our culture and yet find an emptiness and a barrenness of soul. Jesus asked some really provoking and, and challenging questions of people. When he was talking to the Pharisees in Luke chapter 16, again, we're told this little note by Luke, the Pharisees who loved money, who loved money, were sneering at Jesus. And Jesus responds to them by saying, the things that you value, that your culture, your society values, well, they're... they're offensive to God. They're detestable to God. What an interesting statement. I wonder what about our culture, our values, our identity would be detestable to God. The things that we think are so important, so valuable. I wonder what God thinks about those things. And then in Matthew 16, Jesus asks this incredibly profound question that I want for you to kind of carry for this whole year. He says, what does it profit? What good is it if you gain the whole world? If you gained everything? If you do study really hard and you get into your course and, and you do get your PhD and you get the best job in the land and you get the best career opportunity and you live in the best house and you have the best car and you have the best of everything, what good is it if it costs you your soul? And I wonder how many of us 
set the direction of our life on the basis of what makes me rich spiritually, what makes my soul healthy. I wonder whether we think that way at the beginning of every year when we set our dreams and our hopes and our goals for the year. Here's some alarming statistics from a survey. A group of people were asked what they would do for $10 million. What would you do for $10 million? That's a great question to ask yourself. 25% said that they would abandon their entire family. 25% of those surveyed, and maybe you have one of those families, you go, yeah, 10 million bucks, I'm out of here. 25% said that it would, they would abandon their church for $10 million. I hope PCC is not one of those churches that you would abandon for 10 million. If you get 10 million, give it to us, we'll build a new church. That's not the scary stuff. 23% said that they would become a prostitute for a week or more. A prostitute. They would sell their bodies for a week or more for $10 million. This one's not so surprising. 16% said that they would give up their American citizenship. Right now, there's probably more people <laughs> that would be happy to do that. 16%, uh, let me, okay, too late, I told you the number. 16% said that they would leave their spouses for $10 million. Interesting conversation starter over lunch today. <laughs> Would you leave me for $10 million? Maybe. Okay, let me ask you this. See if you can pick the number. Would withhold testimony and let a murderer go free? How many percent? 10. 10% of people would withhold their testimony and let a murderer go free. How many would kill a stranger? 7%. For $10 million, they'd kill a stranger. And this is the, the saddest one. 3% would put their children up for adoption for $10 million. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose your soul? Nothing. Nothing. So at the beginning of this year, as you think about the trajectory of not just 2017, but beyond your life, what are you going to be driven by? What are going to be the core underlying values that set your course, that set your goals, that set your priorities, that set your values for your future? Is it going to be buying into what our culture tells you is valuable and successful, even if it costs you your soul? I want to tell you as your pastor, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Think differently. Don't get to the point where you get to the end of your life and you will not just wait for God to tell you you're a fool. You will know that you've been a fool. You will look at your life and say, what have I done? What a waste of my life. What have I accomplished? What have I achieved? What do I have to show? Is it just this? Whatever that this might be. Is it just $10 million? Is that all I have? And I know we've been talking a lot about money, but it's more than money. When you read Ecclesiastes, the writer of Ecclesiastes asks us to question everything we do. The pursuit of achievement, of education, of building projects, of, of art, of pleasure, of, of anything else that takes the place of Jesus' primacy in our life. Ecclesiastes would say, is a waste of time. 
the, the sole purpose of human existence is to know God, fear God, and give Him glory and bring praise to Him. So I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about anything else that we want to set our lives to pursue at the cost of our soul. At the cost of buying into this idea that if we just get that, we will have control. We can secure our future. That if we just collect enough stuff, then that's going to bring us happiness. They're all lies. And I hope that you will begin this year soberly reflecting on how you're living your life. And I want the band to come up and we're going to have communion together. And I want to say to you as your pastor and as a, as a dad and as a husband that I want something better for me and for my family and I want something better for you as a church. I want something better for us. And Jesus offers us a better way. And that's why communion is such an apt way to end this message, because everything comes back to the gospel. So in Philippians 2, we're told that Jesus, who owned everything already, who is the richest guy in the universe, if you like, had everything. It says he emptied himself. He emptied himself so that we might have life, so that he might be a servant, that he might embrace death, so that he might give everything he had so that we could have everything he has. What a great way to live our lives. Emptying, serving, giving. In 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, Paul uses the language of rich and poor. And he says, he who was rich became poor for our sake, that we might become rich in him. What a great way to live upside down. Jesus, the Lord of the universe, empties himself and serves us. What a great model for us as Christians to live our lives upside down. If we're the wealthiest people, to live ourselves emptied, to live our lives generously, to live our lives to give away, to live our lives to serve others. And even if we don't have a lot, to do more kingdom stuff with what we have to ask God to give us opportunities to invest into the things that really do matter. Upside down. And here's the other great thing about communion and the gospel. We can live inside out. And what I mean by that is, see, because Jesus has come, because he took upon himself our sin, our rebellion, our offensiveness, and he offers us the riches of God, and he offers us life, and he offers us forgiveness, and offers us grace, and brings us into the family of God. Guess what you and I are if you are a follower of Jesus? We're the children of God. We are co-heirs with the richest guy in the whole universe. Surely that's got to bring a sense of confidence and assurance and a willingness to trust our Heavenly Father. As Paul says in Romans 8, if he has given us his son, why would he withhold any good thing from us? Surely we can, as Christians, come to a point where we go, you know what, God, I'm not going to try and accumulate so that I can get control and, and not be afraid and, and live insecure. God, surely the, because you've given me Jesus and because I know him and because I have been accepted and justified and declared righteous and I am now in Christ and a co-heir in Christ, I can live with the assurance that you can take care of me can be secure in you. I can trust you. I can surrender every part of my life to you because you've got me. Because you've got me. 
that is what the gospel offers us. That is what Jesus offers us this morning. And as you hold in your hands these emblems that represent his broken body and his shed blood, I want you to take a moment to just sit with your thoughts and reflect on what Jesus has done through his broken body, his shed blood, and his resurrected life that now lives in you by the power of the Spirit and how that has to impact how you live this year, how you live your life as a co-heir of Christ, as a child of God, how you will live upside down so that you can follow Jesus, our Lord and Savior.